Hello. Well, today I'm going to do a little uh, reading of a few passages from um, Shalimar the Clown, which is a 2005 uh, novel by Salman Rushdie, um, which basically deals with the Kashmir uh, issue, uh, to understate it slightly. Um, of course, there might be, well, there will be spoilers ahead, uh, just uh, in case you ever plan to read this book and don't want things spoiled. But yes, the book uh, is the story primarily of four people, uh, two of whom uh, are husband and wife, uh, two Kashmiris, one Hindu, one Muslim. And uh, it's the story of their love and then uh, of one of the party's betrayal of that love and the violent consequences that follow from that betrayal all set within the backdrop uh, or against the backdrop of uh, the degeneration of Kashmir at the hands of uh, the Indian military and Hindu nationalist ideology as well as the Pakistani-sponsored jihadists and Islamists, who both of whom wreck the lives of what was once a tolerant and um, hybrid culture, where people, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, lived in relative peace and tolerance together. Um, but then the bad times come and attitudes harden and uh, great violence and destruction, uh, inspired by mostly religious um, fanaticism, ensues and destroys this earthly paradise. So, um, yes, yeah, so well, that's kind of the 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 pressy of the story. Though there is quite a lot more, as you can imagine. Uh, including an American ambassador by the name of Max Ophuls, who, is no spoiler to say, uh, dies very early on. Um, he is the man whom Bunyi, uh, the wife of Shalimar the Clown, eloped with, um, had an affair with. And he is murdered in the 19, 1991 by Shalimar the Clown. And then we go back and discover all of these... Their stories, as well as the story of Bunyi and Max's uh, long-lost, well, from Bunyi's perspective, a long-lost daughter called India, or Kashmira. So, if that wasn't too confusing, I'll just get straight into it. I think there's a lot of quite moving things here, and yeah, the central theme really is the destruction of, uh, of tolerance and hybridity by purists and puritanical, uh, fanatical um, killers, and they just ruined this once peaceable paradise. So I shall start with a passage which kind of lays out that old uh, style Kashmir. Uh, basically, uh, Bunyi and Shalimar are still young at this point, but they've been caught out uh, as having, you know, been, uh, uh, you know, having sex and, uh, you know, uh, they're not married or engaged or anything at this point. Um, 
uh, a spy for the Indian Army has revealed this to the village of Pachigam, their home village. Um, and um, they have to face, and now Bunyi and Shalimar are facing the uh, the judgment of the village, including uh, Abdullah Noman, Shalimar's father, and Piyarilal Kol, apologies for massacring those uh, names, uh, who is Bunyi's father, uh, and a Hindu wise man. And Abdullah, uh, Shalimar's dad, he is the head of the village. Right. I'm just going to get on with it. I keep explaining things too much rather than showing them. Pandit Piarlal Kol was standing beside Abdullah Noman, and the two fathers' faces were the grimmest on display. I'm done for, Bunyi thought. They're going to pack me off to that bastard sitting like a cold fish by the river, waiting to have me handed over on a plate, me, Bunyi Kol, whom he could never otherwise have won. She was wrong. Abdullah Noman the Sarpanch spoke first followed by Piyarilal and the other three members of the Panchayat, big man Misri the carpenter, Sharga the singer, and the frail old dancing master Habib Jew, also made brief remarks, and their verdict was unanimous. The lovers were their children and must be supported. Their behaviour was worthy of the strongest censure. It had been licentious and rash and filled with improprieties that were a disappointment to their parents. But they were good children, as everybody knew. Abdullah then mentioned Kashmiriyat, Kashmiriness, the belief that at the heart of Kashmiri culture there was a common bond that transcended all other differences. Most banned villages were Muslim, but Pachigam was a mixture, with families of Pandit background, the Kals, the Mistries, and the baritone singer's long-nosed kin, Sharga being a local nickname for the nasally elongated, and even one family of dancing Jews. So we have not only Kashmiriness to protect, but Pachigaminess as well. We are all brothers and sisters here, said Abdullah. There is no Hindu-Muslim issue. Two Kashmiri, two Pachigami youngsters wish to marry, that's all. A love match is acceptable to both families, and so a marriage there will be. Both Hindu and Muslim customs will be observed, Pierre added when his turn came. To defend their love is to defend what is finest in ourselves. The crowd cheered, and Shalimar the clown broke out into a broad smile of disbelieving joy. Firdaus, that's his mother, went up to Abdullah and whispered, If you had made any other decision, I would have kicked you out of my bed. Later that night, when they lay in that bed in the dark, she was in a more reflective mood. The times are changing, she said softly. Our children aren't like us. In our generation, we were straightforward folk, both hands on the table in plain view at all times. But these youngsters are trickier types. There are shadows on the surface and secrets underneath, and they're not always as they seem, maybe not always even what they think they are. I guess that's how it has to be, because they will live through times more deceptive than any we have known. Now, as I recall, that scene uh, is set in the 60s, I think. Um, so I'm going to move 
quite a bit forward now to the 80s, uh, by which time that love has been uh, destroyed by Bunny's betrayal, and during which time also um, fanaticism and militarism on both sides, uh, both India and Pakistan, uh, has uh, gotten much worse and is coming to a head. And uh, we, uh, we we follow uh, Abdullah here. Uh, should explain he's you know the the band Pather. Again, it's terribly sorry for the pronunciations. Um, uh, you know you know the Patchgam is a village of a, a traveling troupe of dancers and actors and musicians who tour about and uh, put on plays and other entertainments. And Abdullah is the head of this of the village and of the troupe. And I think it's 1987, 1988, and he and uh, his band of actors are in Srinagar, the largest uh, city in Kashmir, to perform um, a play, a play which honours the good, good king Zain ul Abidin, um, a king from centuries ago under whom uh, the Kashmiri ideal uh, of tolerance and coexistence uh, flourished and uh, as this is happening um, many of the people in the city are uh, about to uh, rise up um, and it's a very chaotic and violent moment as they put on this play. The bus bringing the actors and musicians to Srinagar could not get to the depot on account of the crowds gathering in the city streets under the nervous eyes of the army and police. The bands had to get out, carry their props and walk. There were already more than 400,000 people clogging up the roads. Abdullah Noman asked the bus driver what was going on. It's a funeral, he replied. They have come to mourn the death of our Kashmir. The curtain rose on the story of good king Zain ul Abidin, and Abdullah walked out onto the stage with a raised, a raised sword in one hand and a spear in the other, clenching the weapons tightly, ignoring the spears of pain shooting down his hands. He was leading by example for the last time in his life, sending a message to his bored, mutinous troop. If I can rise above my pain, then you can rise above your indifference. But the auditorium was three quarters empty, and the few tourists who were sitting out there weren't really listening to him, because through the walls of the theatre came the muffled sound of the start of the uprising, the crowd of one million persons marching through the streets, carrying flaming torches above their heads and bellowing, Azadi! Sardar Harban Singh was sitting with his son Yuvraj, a strikingly handsome young man whose modernising inclinations were trumpeted by his shaven face and lack of a Sikh turban in the middle of the otherwise empty seventh row. With the sense of a man plunging from a high pinnacle to his death, Abdullah Noman fixed his old comrade with his fiercest, most glittering stare and launched into the play with all the power he had left. For the next hour, in the silent tomb of the auditorium, the bands of Pachigam told a story which nobody wanted to hear. Several members of the audience got up and left during the show. 
In the intermission, Sardar Harband Singh's son Yuvraj, a businessman who in spite of the worsening political situation was successfully exporting Kashmiri papier-mâché boxes, carved wooden tables, numda rugs and embroidered shawls to the rest of India and to Western buyers as well, who supported him as an act of ridiculous optimism considering that the region is on the verge of going insane, warned Abdullah Noman that things might get out of hand in the, in the street and demonstrators might even burst into the theatre. You're holding a sword and a spear, Yuvraj Singh reminded Abdullah. If they do get inside here, a word of advice. Never mind about the play, throw the props down and run. He himself would have to miss the second act, he apologised. The situation, you understand, he explained vaguely. One has one's proper duties to discharge. In the hollow vacuum of the empty theatre... Abdullah, no man, saw his troop of disaffected youngsters give the performances of their young lives, as if they had suddenly understood a secret which nobody had explained to them before. The pounding drumbeats of the demonstration echoed around them. The chanting of the demonstrators was like a chorus crying doom. The menace of the ever-growing crowd crackled around the empty seats like an electric charge. Still, the bands of Pachigam went on with their show, dancing, singing, clowning, telling their tale of old-time tolerance and hope. At one point, Abdullah Noman succumbed to the illusion that their voices, their instruments, had become inaudible. That, even though they were declaiming their lines and singing their songs and playing their music with a passion they had not been able to muster for a long time, there was complete silence in the theatre. The few scattered spectators sat mutely watching a dumb show, while outside in the streets the noise was already immense and grew louder by the instant. And now a second group of noises was superimposed on the first. The noises of troop transports, jeeps and tanks, of booted feet marching in step, of loaded weapons being readied, and finally of gunshots, rifle shots as well as automatic fire. The chanting turned into screaming. The drumbeats turned into thunder. The march turned into a stampede. And as the auditorium began to shake, the tale of King Zain ul Abidin silently reached its happy ending, and the actors joined hands and took their bow. But even though Sardar Harban Singh, the only person left in the audience, applauded as harshly as he could in the circumstances, his clapping hands didn't make any sound at all. All right. Now, skipping forward just a little bit again, and the years following, we have, um, well, the situation is, uh, of course, very much uh, worse. Uh, and uh, now, Piaralal, uh, Bunyu's father, uh, the Hindu wise man of the village, um, he, after Bunyu's uh, betrayal, uh, has kind of uh, withdrawn into himself. Um, doesn't really uh, understand what's going on and uh, is just completely disorientated and uh, distressed by what Kashmir has become. Um, uh, Bunyi has returned to the village at this point uh, as an exile uh, from uh, from down south. Um, 
uh, but she is uh, she's also isolated and sconced herself in the woods in a hut belonging to an old witch. And uh, yes, uh, he's very dis, uh, distressed and discombobulated by her betrayal and by everything that's happening. Um, yes, so. Uh, yes, and so uh, here we come upon him at uh, some point after some killing has begun. Uh, violence between, uh, you know, killings by Islamists of uh, Hindus and so on and so forth. Uh, I should note actually before I uh, go on uh, that I think it's uh, very interesting and important here that uh, the novel deals with uh, Islamist violence against Muslims and uh, Indian army violence against Hindus. Uh, it's not simply two sides pitted against each other, but rather the forces of, uh, uh, of close-mindedness and dogmatism, uh, militarism, uh, attacking uh, the multi-religious uh, people and fabric of Kashmiri society. Anyway, let's get on with this bit. That dark summer, after the mysteries perished, the fruit and pandit Piyarilal calls apple orchards was bitter and inedible, but the peaches of Firdaus no man were as succulent as usual. The saffron in Piyarilal's saffron field was paler and less potent, but the honey in Abdullah's beehives was sweeter than ever before. These matters were difficult to understand, but when Piyaralal heard on the radio that the well-known pandit leader Tika Lal Taplu had been gunned down, the nature of the portents became plain. In the time of Sikander Bhut Shikan, Sikander the iconoclast, he told his daughter at her Gujar hut in the woods, Muslim attacks on Kashmiri Hindus were described as the falling of locust swarms upon the helpless paddy crops. I am afraid that what is beginning now will make Sikander's time look peaceful by comparison. In the weeks that followed, his prophecy came true, and he told Bunyi, Now that everything I have stood for is in ruins, I am ready to die. But I will live on to protect your life from the insanity of your husband even though neither one of us has anything left to live for. The radical cadres of the Jamaati Islami party had new words for Pandit. Mukbir, kafir, meaning spy, infidel. So we are slandered as fifth columnists now, Pierre Alal mourned. That means the assault cannot be far away. In the aftermath of the Muslim insurgency against Indian rule, another pandit was murdered in Tangmarg. Posters appeared on the roads leading from Srinagar to Pachigam, demanding that all pandits vacate their property and leave Kashmir. The first Hindus to respond to the poster campaign were the gods, who began to disappear. The famous black stone statue of Mahakali was one of 20 deities who vacated their home in Hari Parbat Fort and vanished forever. A priceless deity from the 9th century fled the Loch Bavan in Anantsnag and was never seen again. The Shiva Lingam of the du Duan Temple 
also mysteriously departed. These exits were timely, because soon after they occurred, the fire bombings began. The Shaivite temple complex at Handwara, near the famous shrine of Kir Bawani, was gutted by a blaze. Pierlal sat beside Bunyi and buried his face in his hands. Our story is finished, he told her. It is no longer the story of our lives, but the story of a plague year, during which we have the misfortune to be around to grow buboes in our armpits and die unclean and stenchy deaths. We are no longer protagonists, only agonists. A few days later, in Anantanag district, there began a week-long orgy of unprovoked violence against Pandit residential and commercial property, temples and the physical persons of Pandit families. Many of them fled. The exodus of the Pandits from, of Kashmir had begun. Firdaus Noman came to see Piyarilal at his house to assure him that Pachigam's Muslims would protect their Hindu brethren. My wise and gentle friend, she said, never fear, we will take care of our own. The killing of big man misery and Zun suicide was bad enough and we won't let it happen again. You are too precious to lose. Piyarilal shook his head. It is out of our hands, he said. Our natures are no longer the critical factors in our fates. When the killers come, will it matter if we lived well or badly? Will the choices we made affect our destiny? Will they spare the kind and gentle among us and take only the selfish and dishonest? It would be absurd to think so. Massacres aren't finicky. I may be precious or I may be valueless, but it doesn't signify either way. He kept the radio close to his ear at all times. As the bitter apples fell from their trees and rotted on the ground, Piaralal remained indoors, cross-legged with the transistor held up against his head, listening to the BBC. Loot, plunder, arson, mayhem, murder, exodus. These words recurred day after day, and a phrase from another part of the world that had flown many thousands of miles to find a new home in Kashmir. Ethnic cleansing. Kill one, scare ten. Kill one, scare ten. Hindu community houses, temples, private homes and whole neighbourhoods were being destroyed. Piaralal repeated, like a prayer, the names of the places struck by calamity. Trakru, Umanagri, Kupwara, Sangrampora, Wandhama, Nadimarg. Trakru, Umanagra, Kupwara, Sangrampora, Wandama, Nadimarg. Trakru, Umanagri, Kupwara, Sangrampora, Wandhama, Nadimarg. These names had to be remembered. Forgetting would be a crime against those who suffered whole hog burning of their neighbourhoods, or seizure of their property, or death, preceded by such violences as could not be imagined or described. Kill one, scare ten, the Muslim mobs chanted, and ten were indeed scared, more than ten. 350,000 pandits, almost the entire pandit population of Kashmir, fled from their homes and headed south to the refugee camps where they would rot like bitter fallen apples, like the unloved undead dead they had become. In the so-called Bangladeshi markets in the Iqbal Park Hazuri Bag area of Srinagar, the things looted from temples and homes were being openly bought and sold. 
The shoppers hummed the most popular song of the times as they bought their pretty pieces of Hindu cashmere, a song by the well-beloved Medjur. I will give my life and soul for India, but my heart is with Pakistan. There were 600,000 Indian troops in Kashmir, but the pogrom of the pandits was not prevented. Why was that? Three and a half lakhs of human beings arrived in Jammu as displaced persons, and for many months the government did not provide shelters or relief or even register their names. Why was that? When the government finally built camps, it only allowed for 6,000 families to remain in the state, dispersing the others around the country where they would be invisible and impotent. Why was that? The camps at Parku, Muthi, Mishrawala, Nagrota were built on the banks and beds of Nulahaz, dry seasonal waterways, and when the water came, the camps were flooded. Why was that? The ministers of the government made speeches about ethnic cleansing, but the civil servants wrote one another memos, saying that the pandits were simply internal migrants whose displacement had been self-imposed. Why was that? The tents provided for the refugees to live in were often uninspected and leaking and the monsoon rains came through. Why was that? When the one-room tenements called ORTs were built to replace the tents, they too leaked profusely. Why was that? There was one bathroom per 300 persons in many camps. Why was that? And the medical dispensaries lacked basic first aid materials. Why was that? And thousands of the displaced died because of inadequate food and shelter. Why was that? Maybe 5,000 deaths because of intense heat and humidity, because of snake bites and gastroenteritis and dengue fever and stress diabetes and kidney ailments and tuberculosis and psychoneurosis. And there was not a single health survey conducted by the government. Why was that? And the pandits of Kashmir were left to rot in their slum camps to rot where the army and the insurgency fought over the bloodied and broken valley to dream of return, to die while dreaming of return, to die after the dream of return died so that they could not even die dreaming of it. Why was that? 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 Okay, this next brief bit is... um Set again about this same time. Uh, now we're back with uh, Abdullah and Ferdows and the uh, family of Shalimar the Clown. He uh, right now is uh, has joined the Islamists and uh, is uh, wreaking havoc and doing violence and uh, traveling in jihadist circles. Um, but his brother, who inducted him into the resistance, uh, but who didn't join the Islamists, who remained a secular nationalist um, um, opponent of India's actions in Kashmir has come back to Pachigam after many years to warn uh, his mother and father and the village of uh, of the uh, Islamists who will soon descend upon them. And it's uh, a very interesting little scene, uh, especially for its uh, explication of the sexual mindset of jihadists. So, when the men of the house were awake, the family held a kitchen table council of war. Because big man Misri did us all a favour and rid the world of those worthless gegrus before he died, the Lashkar-e-Pak, the holy army, the pure army, now has Pachigam in its sights much more than Shermal, Anis said quietly. This is bad. Even without the Gegrus, those crazy let bastards have maybe 40 or 50 soldiers in the area, and there is no question that they will pick their moment and attack. 
Gurdal Snowman shook her head. How can a woman's face be the enemy of Islam? She asked angrily. Anise took her hands in his. For these idiots, it's all about sex, Mige. Excuse me. They think it is a scientific fact that a woman's hair emits rays that arouse men to deeds of sexual depravity. They think that if a woman's bare legs rub together, even under a floor-length robe, the friction of her thighs will generate sexual heat, which will be transmitted through her eyes into the eyes of men and will inflame them in an unholy way. Firda spreads her hands in a gesture of resignation. So, because men are animals, according to them, women must pay. This is an old story. Tell me something else. Anis nodded in his grave, unsmiling way. That's why I'm here, he said. My unit has decided that we will defend Pachigam and Shermal too, if need be. Don't worry, we have a hundred good guys and can get some friends to assist. But you must be prepared. Hide weapons in every house, but don't try to fight them when they first come. Be patient and take whatever insults they hand out. When we start the battle, then and only then, and then only, you can help us beat the living shit out of them. Excuse me, my soldiers talk. Firdal thumped the table softly. Little boy, she said, you won't know what the living shit looks like until you've seen me at work. The Lashkar E-Pack came to Patchigam on horseback three weeks later, in broad daylight, not expecting any resistance. The leader, a black turbaned Afghan homicidal maniac aged 15, ordered everyone into the street and announced that since the women of Patchigam were too shameless to conceal themselves as Islam required, they should take off their clothes completely so that the world could see what whores they really were. A great murmur arose from the villages, from the villagers, but Firdaus no man stepped forward, took off her firan, and began to undress. Taking their cue from her, the other women and girls of the village also started to strip. A silence fell. The lep fighters were unable to take their eyes off the women, who were stripping slowly, seductively, moving their bodies rhythmically with their eyes closed. Help me, God, one of the Aleps' foreign fighters moaned in Arabic, writhing on his horse. These blue-eyed she-devils are stealing away my soul. The fifteen-year-old homicidal maniac pointed his Kalashnikov at Firdaus no man. If I kill you now, he said nastily, no man in the whole Muslim world will say I was unjustified. At that moment, a small red hole appeared in his forehead and the back of his head blew off. The Baby Che group was getting to be known for the marksmanship of its snipers, as well as for its landmines, and it had a reputation to protect. The battle for Pachigam didn't last long. Anisi's men had been well positioned and were eager for the fight. The Lep militants were encircled and outnumbered, and, in a few minutes, also dead. Firdaus Snowman and the other women put their clothes back on. Firdaus spoke sadly to the dead body of the 15-year-old Lashkar commander. You discovered that women are dangerous, my boy, she said. Too bad you didn't get a chance to become a man and discover we're also good to love. And 
moving on. There's only a couple more left. Don't worry. Not that anyone's listening this far ahead anyway. Or this far into it. Nobody's stuck around that long. Um, now uh, we return back to Piaralal Call and uh, we find him at the end of his life. In early 1991, before the spring thaw, Pandit Piyarilal Kol felt his life detaching itself from his body in a series of small, painless, inaudible pops. Well, that was all right, he thought. He had nobody to teach anymore except himself, and even to himself, he no longer had any knowledge to impart. He spent much time in his small library in those final days, alone with his old books. These books, his true treasure, would also be lost when his time came. He ran his fingers along the worn spines of the treasure vaults on the shelves and pulled out the English romantics. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. Ah, poor Keats, only the very young could imagine that death was a proper response to beauty. We in Kashmir have heard the bulbul too, he apostrophised the great poet across space and time, and he may prove to be the death of us all. He closed his eyes and pictured his Kashmir. He conjured up its crystal lakes, Shishnag, Wular, Nagin, Dal, its trees, the walnuts, the poplar, the chinar, the apple, the peach, its mighty peaks, Nanga Parvat, Rakaposhi, Harmuk, the pandits Sanskritized the Himalayas. He saw the boats like little fingers tracing lines in the surface of the waters and the flowers too numberless to name ablaze with bright perfume. He saw the beauty of the golden children, the beauty of the green and blue-eyed women, the beauty of the blue and green-eyed men. He stood atop Mount Shankaracharya, pardon me, Shankaracharya, which the Muslims called Takti Suleiman, and spoke aloud the famous old verse concerning the, the earthly paradise. It is this, it is this, it is this. Spread out below him like a feast, he saw gentleness and time and love. He considered getting out his bicycle and setting forth into the valley, bicycling until he fell on and on into the beauty. Oh, those days of peace when we were all were in love and the rain was in our hands wherever we went. No, he would not ride out into Kashmir. Did not want to see her scarred face, the lines of burning oil drums across the roads, the wrecked vehicles, the smoke of explosions, the broken houses, the broken people, the tanks, the anger and fear in every eye. Everyone carries his address in his pocket so that at least his body will reach home. Ya Kashmir, he cried out. Hi, hi, Ya Kashmir. He would not see his daughter again, his only child, whose life he had saved by making an exile of her, transforming her into a tribal wild woman. What a strange tale hers had been. He did not know her fully anymore, could not grasp her thoughts. She had turned within herself and was communing with death. As now was he. Bumi call, Bunyi no man. He could protect her no longer. 
he sent her a word of loving farewell and felt a breeze lift it up and carry it away to her enchanted wood. He wondered if he would live to see the blossom on his apple trees and felt an answering pop inside himself. Ah, so it would not be long now. It began to snow lightly, the last flakes to fall before the spring. He put on his wedding finery, the clothes he had worn long ago when he married his beloved Pamposh, and which he had kept all this time wrapped in tissue paper in a trunk. As a bridegroom, he went outdoors, and the snowflakes caressed his grizzled cheeks. His mind was alert, he was ambulatory, and nobody was waiting for him with a club. He had his body and his mind, and it seemed he was to be spared a brutal end. That, at least, was kind. He went into his blighted apple orchard, seated himself cross-legged beneath a tree, closed his eyes, heard the verses of the Rig Veda fill the world with beauty, and ceased upon the midnight with no pain. And now, for sure, the last bit. Uh, going to end on a bit of a downer, I'm afraid. Uh, but we come back... Uh, not long after uh, Pierre Alal calls uh, death and uh, we return to Pachigam and uh, to the villagers and Abdullah and Firdaus uh, and well I'll just launch into it Anis Noman was captured alive though suffering from gunshot wounds in the right leg and shoulder after an encounter with security forces in the southwestern village of Siot, where he'd holed up with 20 militant fighters aged between 15 and 19 above a food store called Adu's, whose owner called in the troops because the youngsters drank all his cans of condensed milk, a decision he regretted after the army wrecked his shop with grenades that blew out the whole front wall of the small two-storey wooden building and several hundred rounds of automatic fire from an armoured vehicle parked at point-blank range, which destroyed all the produce that had managed to survive the grenade blast. Look what your greed has done, old man Adu complained to the corpses of the militants as they were dragged out of his upstairs room, adding, in an explanation to the world in general, They drank my imported goods, goods from foreign, then what was I to do? Several of the dead boys had been involved in the defence of Patchigam against the Lep, and they saved Anise's life too by coming between him and the grenade blast and bullets. It would have been better if they had let him die in Siot, however, because then he would not have met his end in the secret torture chambers of Badami Bag, those rooms which had never existed, did not exist and would never exist, and from which nobody ever heard a scream, no matter how loud it was. On the wall of the room, somebody had written two words in black crayon. They were the last words Anis would ever read. Everybody talks. After the capture of Anis Snowman, the son of the Sarpanch of Pachigam, the decision-makers of Badami Bag knew that it was no longer possible for Sardar Harban Singh or any other high-ranking bleeding-heart string-puller to protect the traitorous sister-fuckers of that village of so-called traditional actors and cooks. General Kachwaha himself signed the document of authorization, and the cordon and search crackdown teams moved out on the double. 
The sheltered status of the band village had been a long-standing annoyance to Jawans and ranking officers alike. The crackdown on Pachigam would therefore be particularly satisfying, and the gloves, of course, would be off. The army officer, who brought a nice no man's body back to his mother's house, the detachment in charge, did not offer his name or his condolences. The corpse was tossed onto the doorstep, wrapped in a bloodied grey blanket, and the front door was smashed down. Firdaus was dragged out by her grey hair and pushed so that she stumbled over her dead son. A single cry escaped her lips, but after that, in spite of everything she saw in his body, she remained silent, until she stood up and looked the in-charge in the eye. Where are his hands? she asked. His hands that were so deft, that had whittled and shaped so much. Give me back his hands. Anise's father knelt proudly by his son, placed his twisted hands together and began to recite verses. The in-charge was unimpressed. Why is your woman making noise about hands, he said to Abdullah, when your hands don't even know how to pray? He made a gesture, and two soldiers grabbed the Sarpanch's hands and pushed them against the floor. Hands, is it? the in-charge said. Before going any further, let's straighten these two out right here. What was that cry? Was it a man, a woman, an angel or a god, who enkeened thus, who howled just so? Could any human voice make such a desolate noise? There was the earth and there were the planets. The earth was not a planet. The planets were the grabbers. They were called this because they could seize hold of the earth and bend its destiny to their will. The earth was never of their kind. The earth was the subject. The earth was the grabby. Pachigam was the earth, the grabby, helpless and powerful uncaring planets stooped low, extended their celestial and merciless tentacles and grabbed. Who lit that fire? Who burned that orchard? Who shot those brothers who laughed their whole lives long? Who killed the sarpanch? Who broke his hands? Who broke his arms? Who broke his ancient neck? Who shackled those men? Who made those men disappear? Who shot those boys? Who shot those girls? Who smashed that house? Who smashed that house? Who smashed that house? Who killed that youth? Who clubbed that grandmother? Who knifed that aunt? Who broke that old man's nose? Who broke that young girl's heart? Who killed that lover? Who shot his fiancée? Who burned the costumes? Who broke the swords? Who burned the library? Who burned the saffron field? Who slaughtered the animals? Who burned the beehives? Who poisoned the paddies? Who killed the children? Who whipped the parents? Who raped that lazy-eyed woman? Who raped that grey-haired lazy-eyed woman as as she screamed about snake vengeance? Who raped that woman again? Who raped that woman again? Who raped that woman again? Who raped that dead woman? Who raped that dead woman again? The village of Pachigam still exists on the official maps of Kashmir, due south of Srinagar and west of Shirmal, near the Anantnag Road. In such public records as are still available for inspection, its population is given as 350, and in a few guides, for the benefit of visitors, there are passing references to the band Pather, a dying folk art, and to the dwindling number of dedicated troops that seek to preserve it. This official existence, this paper self, is its only memorial. 
for where Pachigam once stood by the Blythe Muscadoon, where its little street ran along from the Pandit's house to the Sarpanches, where Abdullah roared and Bunyi danced and Shushankar sang and Shalimar the clown walked the tightrope as if treading upon air, nothing resembling a human habitation remains. What happened that day in Pachigam need not be set down here in full detail. Because brutality is brutality and excess is excess and that's all there is to it. There are things that must be looked at indirectly because they would blind you if you looked them in the face, like the fire of the sun. So, to repeat, there was no Pachigam anymore. Pachigam was destroyed. Imagine it for yourself. Second attempt. The village of Pachigam still existed on maps of Kashmir, but that day it ceased to exist anywhere else except in memory. Third and final attempt. The beautiful village of Pachigam still exists. And that is that. Um, clearly I focused on the sort of uh, grander or broader political aspects of, of uh the Kashmir issue and uh, how it affected people there. Um, I would recommend the book very much. It's very beautiful. I found myself quite moved as I read that, uh, both uh, when I read it originally and reading it aloud there. I apologise for being slightly rushed again um, and for any quality issues and for my terrible pronunciation of uh, Kashmiri and Indian uh, names and Pakistani words and so on and so forth. Um, I try my best, but uh, probably uh, uh, if you speak any of those languages or are familiar with them, you may not want to listen to this. No, it's a bit late now. Uh, if you've made it this far, which nobody has, so that's fine. Uh, yes. So. Yeah, it's a very beautiful novel. I recommend it very much. It's one of Rushdie's uh, very best. And, yeah, just a, a tragic and terrible tale of the destruction of a tolerant earthly paradise by religious and political um, fanaticism. Um, and I barely even read anything about the main narrative strand which uh, as i said involves shalimar the clown and bunyu call and uh max offals the ambassador and his and bunyu's daughter india slash kashmira uh so there's still plenty to discover in the book plenty else that i haven't read to you i mean um some of that was quite hard to read um the destruction of Pachigam in particular and PRLL's confusion and pain and lament. Why was that? <sighs> anyway, these forces still continue to uh, wreck lives, um, desolate uh, entire countries and regions and populations. Uh, So the only antidote, I suppose, is to put forth a better vision, uh, such as Salman Rushdie's 
anyway, I'm I'm just uh, meditating a little bit. Uh, that is that for this week. Thank you for listening. If you did, which you didn't, uh, so I'm just talking to myself. Great. Have a good week.